listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And we have a great guest today. You know, his band, Dexys, they have an album coming out July 28th called The Feminine Divine. And I just I just saw one of the one video. He has a really nice red suit. And with their hit, their big hit in the 80s, um, Come On Eileen, was the reason why me and all my friends in the 80s wore overalls. They brought overalls back. And my guest is Kevin Rowland. How you doing, Kevin? Very good, Steve. How's it going? I'm doing well. So um, let's talk about the new album. First of all, the video, I'm going to get free. It's just, yeah. it's a fun video. Where did you shoot that at? Uh, Bethnal Green, which is an area in East London. Um, it was, still is a kind of a working class area, but it's becoming slightly gentrified, but it's not that gentrified, you know. Um, and yeah, it's just a typical sort of UK high street, you know. So that was the vibe we wanted, me basically walking down the high street singing. Where'd you get the red suit? Because that's a, that's a sharp-looking suit. That's, that's cool. Thank you. I designed it myself, actually, and had it made. So you just you come up with all of I mean, tell me about designing. What's it like to design a suit? I mean, I, I've never met you know, people who've designed suits, really. Uh, well, it sort of usually comes about organically. Um, I'll buy a pair of trousers and think these are okay, but I want them a bit wider here, a bit narrower here or whatever. And I'll buy some fabric, go to a tailor and say, same as these, but with these modifications. Same with a jacket. I found a, a friend of mine had a jacket that was considerably longer. Uh, and I don't think it was double-breasted, actually. I think it was, yeah, single-breasted, I think. Yeah, single-breasted. And, um, you know, he got it from, it was an American jacket, actually, from the 70s. And I just said, I love that jacket. Can I buy it off you? And he went, yeah, okay. So we did a deal and I had the jacket. But then I thought, oh, it could be better off this. So I had a few jackets made until I got the right one, you know. And, uh, yeah. That's what I did. That's how I made it. Now, tell me about that song. It's your. It's. I'm going to get free. Tell me what what you were writing about about that song because your album, you know, the 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 song, the Five Men Divine, is very deep and it's very powerful. But what? Where did this first song come from? I'm going to get free. Um. Well, it was originally a song we had laying around ages ago. You know, years ago, decades ago, actually. Uh, but and we got a few, but and we just hadn't. We hadn't, uh, we just didn't use it for whatever reason. Didn't feel right to use it, and uh, right about now it felt right, you know. So, um, yeah, and what it's about, just breaking out, you know, just breaking out of self-made restrictions, depression, what you think other people think about you, you know, just breaking out of your own mind-made bondage. Now, this album. It's your first album in a while. Why such a long delay? Um, after the last album, I think uh, I just kind of felt a bit drained. You know, we were dealing with a major and, you know, a lot of that was all right. But sometimes I found it quite taxing, you know, and um, I just was fed up with the music business and just felt quite drained and had to get away. And, uh, you know, I, I, I felt stressed out, really. And I think uh, I, I'm prone to that, getting stressed quite easily, uh, you know, now as well. But um, so it's, a cause, it's always um, a tightrope, a battle. But uh, and I just didn't have anything to say. I didn't really just want it. I didn't want to do music. I just needed to get away. And then 2020, 21, somewhere around there, I just thought, OK, I've got some enthusiasm now. I can write something. I've got something to say. I could do music now and decided to, you know. 
started writing. Now, did the pandemic affect your creativity? Do you think it enhanced it or it was something that it it stunted it? Because a lot of people, I, I talked to a lot of musicians in the beginning, they they were they could see their family. They could, you know, they weren't concentrating on music. And then a lot of them got like a creative spark, I think, because they were inside. They couldn't go out. How did it affect you? Because as you said, 2021, that's when we were, you know, a big part of it. When, how, did, how did your creativity get affected by the pandemic? I don't know if it did. Um, I tried to ignore the pandemic as much as I could. Not not ignoring the restrictions, but just tried not to tried not to buy into all the fear that was around because uh, I got enough of my own anyway, you know? So I just thought it's just going to, you know, sorry, i got all kinds of noises going on. Let me shut those other apps down. Um, yeah. So, um, so where were we? Yeah, I just sort of tried to shut out all the noise of the pandemic while, while adhering to the restrictions that were required, you know. But um, I don't know if the pandemic affected me or not, really. I honestly don't know. I didn't like loads of people just sit down and start working, you know, and frantically working just because uh, the, the pandemic. I know a lot of people did. I didn't. But it wasn't until the end of the pandemic, really, that we started on this now you said uh, stress, and you said you suffer from stress. I I suffer from stress and anxiety too. I found this great gummy. It's called ashwagandha. It's an herb, and it's actually helped me. I started taking it. It's it's a legal gummy. It's nothing like you know the you know marijuana gummy. But have you always suffered from stress and anxiety? Is that something that you've gone through your whole life? Yeah, I, I did, but I didn't know it before. I just thought it, I used to think it was external circumstances, you know, were making me stressed. I didn't realize it was me. And sometimes I still don't. I still think it's outside things, but they're just triggering me. You know what I mean? It's like it's me who gets stressed. Now, how have you how have you learned to accept that and deal with it? Because it is very hard, as you said. You don't know because you wake up sometimes and you think, "Oh my!" You wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, "Oh crap! Wait, is this going to get paid or is this?" And it's something that you should just be sleeping. I mean, let's be honest. We should just be sleeping, yeah. but you wake up like, yeah. "Oh, how have you? How have you been learning to deal with it?" Because it, it takes it takes a lot out of you, and people don't know that it really can it really can beat you up somewhat. Yeah. Um, yeah. It does. It really it's, wears you down if you're not careful. I meditate. I meditate in the mornings. I do yoga or qigong, stuff like that. Do Try and do a little bit every morning at least. Um, try and take walks, you know, in nature, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, all of that. Now, with the album, Feminine, The Feminine Divine, tell me about the song, The Feminine Divine, where it comes from. I think uh, I just, uh, you know, realized that out of the blue, really, uh, that I had, um, you know, my approach, my, my, my thinking towards women was wrong, really. I kind of took them for granted. And um, I just did some reading and some... Uh, you know, some courses within the last five or six years, and I started to see things differently. And once I did, that song just came out 
almost in one hit, all the lyrics just bang, 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 and I just sat down and it just came out. Now, now, what is your normal writing process? I mean, you said that came out at one time, but do you usually will you sit down sometimes and write, or do you just wait till you get inspired and then you say, okay, this is time? Uh, I'd probably just wait till I'm inspired, which probably isn't a great way to do it. You know, it's probably not as productive as if I just sort of sat down every day, but I'm quite unmotivated a lot of the time, you know. Sometimes stress, sometimes just being overwhelmed, you know what I mean? Sometimes I can't think straight, and I don't know what to do, and stuff like that but if i have to do something if somebody's coming around i'll get it done you know that's why i like writing with somebody else because if they're coming around at 11 o'clock i'll be ready but if they're not coming around at 11 o'clock i'm probably not going to do anything now the new album how long did it take in all to write the whole album and to record it what was the process because now you know recording has changed so much you can record in different places you can be where you are somebody be somewhere where they are you don't have to be together but what was the whole process of you recording this album because it, it's you know, it, and once in a while, it's been a while. Re- recording mm. things have changed. You know, the way people can make albums now has changed. What was the yeah. process when you guys were getting together to do this whole thing? I mean, we didn't do it in the way that people used to, Steve. You know, um, we didn't do it in the way we used to. The last couple of albums, the previous two albums, we didn't do it that way. Like everybody um, getting together in the studio rehearsing. Uh, we did it all separately, and I, because I, I, I just. The last two albums were expensive and there was a lot of stress. You know, everybody, we recorded them both live, everything live in the studio, brass, strings, vocals, all at the same time, drums, the lot. And uh, we just realised that that was just too stressful and, and expensive. So um, we happened upon, through Pete Schweer, who's our producer, we happened upon a guy called Toby Chapman, who plays a lot of stuff and programmes and all that. And he does it really well. So we just would send him demos. We'd make a demo, and then we'd send him the demo, and we'd say, program this up, but in a different key, change that bit to that bit. And sometimes he put in ideas. Sometimes we didn't like them. Sometimes we would like them, you know? And eventually we got there. And then we'd record, I'd record my vocals separately, and we'd record the brass separately. Steve, have you heard the whole of the album? I've only, I didn't get, I've only heard the two songs that I had the tracks to. Okay, you've only been sent the two tracks. Yes. Now, now tell me, okay. tell me about the whole album, though, because you're, you're piecing. Because you know, I'm 58, so I come from a generation where we heard a song, and like we'd see a song on MTV, we go to the record store, we buy the album, and we would look at yeah. it, and we'd flip it over, and we would hope all the songs are great and they were ordered perfect. And then, if let's say a cassette had the songs differently, you'd be like, wait a second, that's not the order. You know, I mean, it's just one of those yeah. things when you hear Queen's. Yeah bicycle uh, fat bottom girls you know your bicycle races you go hey that's just not right that they, they they connect on the album how do you, how did you put the tracks together how at this point because it's been a while how do you decide what where the tracks go because you know I mean, the two songs i heard are completely different sounding and they're both great it's a lot more than that steve the, the album is a concept album it's a narrative it's got a narrative running through it it starts off with a guy who's completely macho around women. Basically, in the first song, he's saying, I'm not saying it's me, it's it's not autobiographical, but some of it of me is definitely in there, it's personal. But the first song, he's basically saying, if you touch my girlfriend, it means a fight. Then in the second song, he's saying, you know what? I don't really, that's not really me. I don't really believe all that macho bullshit. And in the third song, uh, you know, he's questioning that more. 
And in the fourth song, you know, I'm going to get free and coming home. He's breaking out of that. He's moving forward. In the fifth song, Feminine Divine, he appraises his relationships with women. In the sixth song, he gets into a relationship with a woman in a way he never would have done before. And that relationship continues to the end of the album. And it talks about what happens during the relationship. Now, did you have that all planned out when you were writing it? I mean, because the concept, you know, oh. you, you hear concept is such a big thing. Or did you just start writing songs and then this concept, you suddenly, a light bulb went off and you went, holy shit, I'm writing this, I'm writing a narrative, basically. Yeah. You're writing a narrative. Exactly, exactly. A light bulb went off. I thought, shit, if I put these in this order, if I put that song there, hang on, these all tell a story. So I thought, it's a no-brainer. And then I think probably I did a few little touches that made it, you know, more cohesive as a journey. But yeah, it just, it was, it was a no-brainer. It came out of the blue. It didn't plan it that way. Just thought, shit. Because why that is, the first couple songs, like uh, the first song on the album, track one, The One That Loves You, I wrote that 30 years ago originally, that lyric. When I was of that mind, you know, uh, I want you to know that I love you so, I never will falter, I won't let you go, so baby, be clear when I say unto you, I'm the one that loves you. So when somebody talks to you and he says things you shouldn't do, well, then you just send him to the one that loves you. And then it goes, I'm not denying, baby, uh, I'm not denying you're a very strong woman, but you'll need my help. And there'll be times when you're not so sure. A man comes up to you, he says, how do you do? But you can tell from that look in his eye that he's not just a friendly kind. Well, point that man to me, because he's offended me. And I would like to demonstrate to him black Irish chivalry. So, baby, is this clear? Baby, don't you know I'm the one that loves you? That's the chorus. So that's the, that's, that was my stance 30 years ago. That's how I saw the world and people and girlfriends and stuff, you know? And then, but, but I'm not there now. So I suppose in some ways it's kind of my journey. A lot of it is my journey. The second song starts with... Well, you know, I'm not really sure that's the truth. It's like, it's like the guy's having a conversation and it go, and it go, I go, what? Well, no, that's not really true. And to be honest, this is how I feel. And then it goes into the next song. I've tried, um, uh, it's all right, Kevin, it's called. Uh, you know, I've tried so hard to be a man and now I don't care if I can. My life has been one long fight. He's talking about the struggles of trying to keep up this thing, fight as a man and then, there's more. He starts to move forward. And like I said, feminine divine. He sees his relationships with women have been all wrong. Then he gets into a kind of a female-led relationship where she's the kind of strong one. So it's, it's, it, that's the concept, Steve, you know? Now, when you're writing that, is it in somewhat invigorating? Because you said, well, first of all, what made you change your stance? You know, you, you said 30 years ago, and we all do grow. I mean, it was a different time to 30 years ago. But was it just something that you think you matured or what was it that made you change where now you can look back and say it's semi-autobiographical autobiographical whatever it's called and i can write about it now and and and, and, and be aware of it i think at the like i told you at the end of 2016 i was um i was uh finding quite down and i didn't want to do music and i was demotivated and I went to Thailand. I was interested in some courses they do out there, some Tao courses and some Tantra courses. And I started to take those courses. And they started to refer to women as goddesses and all of that. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> she's a goddess. 
And then I thought, and as I carried on working, I thought, hang on, she actually is. So, so a light bulb went on through through doing that that work, really, that sort of personal growth. And I just decided to write about it. Now, what are your musical influences? When you were young, what did you listen to? Because your music has a lot of different sounds to it. You know, it's got, it's soulful, it's stuff like that. But as a kid, what was, what were you listening to? What was, what were you sitting there? What were your influences? Everything. Everything. You know, pop. Pop music on the radio all the time. We didn't have that many records. Tamla was a big one. Tamla Motown. Stacks. But also pop. UK pop. American pop. Beatles. Monkeys. Elvis was my first when I was a kid, you know. Like I'm 10 years older than you. And um, Elvis, you know, when I was seven or eight heard him singing and saw pictures of him uh didn't see him on tv in those days he wasn't on tv he had to go to the cinema to watch him you know but um yeah people like that all of it all of it irish music all me all music reggae all of it so so what made you decide to get into music because you know I, I have a background in stand-up comedy and I don't know why, I think maybe because I got bullied a few times when I was a kid by these two guys, and I just wanted to express myself on stage and make people laugh, because to me it was somewhat of an acceptance. But what made you get into music? I think I always wanted to do music. You know, from the age of six, seven, eight, I just thought this is what I want to do. I was always just singing, and uh, I wanted to do it. But I think what happened is as I went, I grew up in this environment where None of my friends were doing music or talk. They would talk about music, but they didn't talk about playing music or being in bands or anything. They would just go to clubs and dance, you know. But, um, yeah, the people who played music were like on another side of culturally. We're on a different side, you know. They were like somewhere else. Um, you know, they were more middle class what you probably sort of we we have working class middle class and upper class i think there you your middle class is uh, is middle class blue collar there i don't know it, there's there's lower middle class upper middle class and middle class and and the thing is blue collar can make a very good living here so they come into middle class basically in america we have the real rich ones <laughs> then we trickle down but middle class can be okay. anywhere across Right, here, it's not about money. It's not about money. It's about class. They call it class, reading. So it's about what your parents did for a living, even if they're not rich. A lot of the middle class are not rich, but they look down on the working class because the working class are largely nowhere near as well educated as the middle class. It's about education and all that here. It's not, it's not, not about money. So we were from a working class background, not poor, but sort of upper working class, probably. My dad was an Irish immigrant, you know, to, to England. And he had his own building company. And he was, he was under pressure. He just started it. But, you know, we had our own house and all that stuff. Um, but my mates were, you know, from the working class. Because I was from a working class background. That's what I... Those were the ones I identified with rather than the... The, the, the people who, who, liked, who played music in those days would have been more hippie-ish. You know... There wasn't anybody really listening to reggae or soul that I knew and playing that music or pop even. You know, it was like, oh, well, you've got to be, you know, long hair and 
that's what was going on. So I didn't think I could get into it. And also I had my mum. It wasn't just that I had a, a learning block. You know, when I was 10, my mum bought me a guitar and I started to learn it. And I went to lessons, had a couple few lessons, but I didn't have the right. I only had four strings on it. It was a weird guitar instead of six. But um, I definitely had um, what they call ADHD now, you know. I just couldn't concentrate. I didn't really learn much at all in school from the age of about 12 or 13. In English I did, but not maths. And in a way, guitar is kind of maths in a lot of ways, you know. Music is maths in some way, you know. So I had I struggled with that. But I was very lucky when my brother was, um, he was in a, he, he learned to play bass and sing and he was in a band. And he was, uh, it was just, you know, and the guitar player was leaving and he said, um, if you, if, he said, I'm going to give you a six months notice because he was his friend. So my brother said, if you can learn all the songs in six months, you can join the band. So that was all the incentive I needed. I practiced a little bit every night and it was just about good enough at the end of the six months. And then eventually I started thinking, OK, let me try and write a song. My brother very kindly allowed me to play, you know, one or two of my own songs in the set, even though people didn't come to hear our songs. It was a covers band, you know. They wanted to hear the Beatles or Elvis or whatever, you know. But he uh, let me put one or two in, and then I decided to form a band, you know. Now, when you formed Dexy, how did you form Dexy's Midnight Runners? You know, it, it's it's so funny because looking back, first of all, come on, Eileen, everybody knows that song. I, I always say, if you meet someone who has never heard that song, you're meeting someone who hasn't been out of their house and like ever. But how did that? How did your, the band come together? Um. Well, we we just formed it, myself and Kevin Archer. You know, we decided we we kind of knew what kind kind of song, what kind of album, uh, what, sorry, what kind of band we wanted to form, what the lineup would be, roughly, and then we just put an advert in the paper for musicians and just you know and auditioned them and formed the band. That was it. Now, now back then, was it hard to get a record deal? You know, the weird thing was, with the first band I had, the punk band, it was ever so hard. And we were always trying and pestering labels to get a record deal and all of that. With Dexys, we didn't try. What we did instead was we all packed our jobs in. In, in the, the UK then, you could live on what we call the dole, unemployment benefit. It was enough to live on. Just about. And uh, we all did that and we rehearsed all day. Five days a week, we treated it like a job. 10 o'clock till 5 o'clock or whatever it was, 6 o'clock. And uh, we just rehearsed for six months. And by the end of that six months, we started doing gigs. And people started coming to us. And we phoned one or two and went down to see, but nothing really came of that. The people just came to us in the end. You know, that's, that seems to be what happens. If you're good, if you work hard and you're good, You've got a good chance of, uh, in England at least, anyway. I can't speak for anybody else, anywhere else. But that's how it was then. You've got a good chance of people wanting to check you out, you know. Now, how exciting was was when you got to first to go into the studio to record your first album? Was it something that you worked your ass up? It's funny, you said you were on the dole, but you were actually working. I mean, that's the thing. It wasn't like you were just sitting there going, oh, whatever. You were you're treating it like a profession you were saying yeah. this is like a nine to five job but we're not yeah. stuck behind the desk so yeah what was the payoff when you when you got into the studio were you guys did you know exactly what you were going to do or were you a little bit intimidated because all of a sudden it was the studio and it's an album uh no we, we rehearsed well and we had a good producer at that point pete wingfield 
and we knew he'd do a good job, and he did do a good job with the first album, you know. Um, we knew, we knew, yeah, and we were well rehearsed, you know. So it was just a matter of caption and the spirit, really. Now, come on, Eileen hits. Did you ever have an idea? And most people don't. Did you ever have an idea it would have a magnitude in just that everybody knows that song? I mean, what was it? What were you thinking of when you wrote that song? I wasn't thinking about the results. I wasn't thinking about what would happen. I thought this could be a really good one. I thought this one could be a hit if we get it right. And it did. It just came came about like magic, you know. It just we put all the work in, and then all of a sudden, at the end, it just sort of finished itself up. And uh, but I didn't think. I thought it would do well. I thought it could do really well. But I didn't. I mean, we didn't think about America or anything like that. It was never in our. You know, it was just we didn't really think about America. We were just thinking about England. So it hits. How does your life change when that song hits? Because that song blows up. Yeah. I mean, it opened a lot of doors for us, you know. And all of a sudden, my life became very, very busy, you know. <laughs> for the next year, 18 months, two years or whatever, it was just touring or, or promotion or whatever, you know. Now, I want to ask you, Top of the Pops. Everyone grows up in England watching that. What was it like when when you when you get to play top on the pop top of the pops? What is that like for an artist, especially for you? You grew up, you you see Elvis at the cinema, but you probably watched Top of the Pops. What is that like for an artist? Every week, every week, religiously, everybody watched Top of the Pops in the UK. They were getting fifteen million viewers when I was a kid. You know, out of a population of about thirty five, you know, everybody you knew watched it except old people. You know, um, yeah, anybody who had a passing interest in music watched it because that's all there was. There was no other program on that was it once a week half seven um yeah oh, i was daunting when i first went there think, jesus this is where where i've seen roxy music you know one of my favorites and all these bands you know they've all played here wow yeah daunting did you enjoy it though No, because I was always nervous. But I was never blasé about it. Some people, bands used to complain, oh, you got to hang around all day. I think, what are you talking about? You're not fucking top of the pops, mate. <laughs> I was always like that, you know? Now, now, what, what's the future for the band? First of all, why did you get rid of Midnight Runners? It's just Dexys now. Was that just a thing you wanted to re, pretty much rebrand yourself, or what did that come from? Uh... It was a rebranding. It was us saying, it's still us, but we're not a revival band, so don't be expecting us to try and recreate the 80s. But it's still us. But we've moved on. That was it. So what, 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 do, you, what do you see in your future? What, what's, what's Dexy's future? You have the album coming out July 28th. What, what do you want to do, do in the next five years? I don't know. Um, we've got a tour in September. Uh, of the UK. We've got a European tour in October. We're looking at a US tour in November. We're looking at dates. It's not confirmed, but we're looking at the, the feasibility and the possibility we'd like to do that. Uh, if this album does well, uh, we may well do another album. We've got some more material and we've got another idea, concept, completely different for the next album. So, uh, yeah, we shall see. Are you looking forward to getting on the road? 
I mean, when's the last time you, you, you took out a tour? Is that something you, you love the performing live or what, what's your view when that's coming up? 2012 is the last time. Uh, I'm dreading it. Uh, I'm a lot of anxiety about it, singing and all of that. Why though? Because you people like you. you the people are paying money to see you, so it's not like, like with comedy. If you go into a gig and people are, you know, there's always that one prick who has to like try to speak out, and you're like, really? Like, there's 200 people here. Why are you doing that? But with music, people don't. People come to enjoy you, and people enjoy you. Just that I can, whether I can do it or not, whether my voice is going to hold out, whether all the ideas that I've got in my head for the band and everything are going to work. Well, I'm going to thank you for coming on today, Kevin. How can, how can people get in touch with, uh, I know you have a Facebook page, the Dexy, uh, the Dexies, but how can people get in touch with you? Uh, Dexies dot, uh, uh, I think it's Dexies dot, shall I just check? Dexies dot org or something? No, I you don't know. know. They can Google, they can Google Dexies and they'll find they it. E-X-Y-S. Yeah, I'm just checking it now. Dexies dot, oh, is that it? No, it's something else. I don't know what it is. Yeah, D-E-X-Y-S. Just Google it, all the tour dates and or, or YouTube. It's all on there, the new stuff. Two, two new tracks so far. We're going to have another one on there in a week or so. So, people, check it out. And the songs are very good. Uh, the album comes out on July 28th. The tour is in the fall. So, check out Dexies. Uh, check out my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 960 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.